Hi, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Holger Dressler, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Gregory Samantha Rosenthal, an assistant professor of public history at Roanoke College in Virginia, about their new book, Beyond Hawaii, Native Labor in the Pacific World, published by University of California Press in 2018. Gregory Samantha Rosenthal, welcome to the show. Hello. Samantha, I wonder if you could begin by telling our listeners a bit about yourself. Yes. So, um, so first of all, I'm not from Hawaii. I'm not Kanaka Maule. I'm not native Hawaiian. Um, I grew up in New York of, of a Jewish American family um, with deep roots in New York City and um, ended up doing a lot of different things. I majored in music in college, actually. I only took one history class in four years of college. And um, I then got a master's in public history um, and worked in that field for several years at house, uh, Historic House and walking tours and stuff like that. I was a park ranger. And then uh, eventually decided to go back for my doctorate, which I did at Stony Brook on Long Island in New York. Um, and that's when I began to work on this book. It was actually my first year of graduate school. I wrote a seminar paper, which is the basis of chapter one of the book. That was 11 years ago. <laughs> yeah. So um, I, um, I went to Stony Brook to work with Christopher Sellers. He's a environmental historian who has worked particularly at the intersections of labor, health, and environment. And um, I didn't know that those were my interests going in. In fact, I had applied to the PhD program to do a project based in upstate New York, where I had grown up, around indigenous history, which is what this book ended up being, but focused on... um, Onondaga people and environmental issues, particularly Onondaga Lake, which is one of the most polluted lakes in the country. But within a within the first semester in grad school, I was reading works in my classes with my professors and feeling really challenged to think beyond the uh, sort of provincial bubble of my upbringing in upstate New York. And I thought that if I, and add to that too, I hadn't done any groundwork on that potential project and I didn't have any relationships with the Onondaga Nation. Um, And so when I got to grad school, I was taking courses in Chinese history, which uh, there's a backstory to that, that I had gone to China in college and studied Mandarin And um, I have done a lot of work um, around China for for a while. So I was taking Chinese history and world history courses. And I just thought, you know, if I'm going to make grad school the most successful and challenging it can be, I I want to pursue a project that brings all my interests and skills together, like the Chinese language skills, which I didn't really end up using that much in the book, but the plan was that I might and um, do a project that would bridge China and the U.S., that would engage with indigenous histories, engage with environmental history, 
And one day I was looking at a map, a world map, and I just, that was sort of it. It was like, oh, okay, Hawaii's right in the middle of all of this. There's got to be a story there about China and the U.S. and indigenous peoples that, that ties this together. And of course, like other scholars have explored that and, and written some of those histories. I, so I had absolutely no idea what I was getting into, total outsider to that region of the world with no, um, no ground game at all. And I flew to Hawaii on my own money that winter break between fall and spring semester to just go out there and explore in the archives and explore around in communities to um, just to see what I could learn in a week. And yeah, by the time I came back from that trip, I, I was doing the sandalwood project. It was all sandalwood all the time for about, for about a year or so. So that's sort of how I got started. Wow. So Sandalwood got you interested uh, in in these Central Pacific Islands. That that's amazing uh, to to hear about the the background and how you got interested in it. Um, so let's let's get into the book uh, itself. It's a fascinating account of um, workers uh, from Hawaii who spread out all across the Pacific in the 19th century. Um, if I were to summarize kind of the central thesis of your book, it's uh, that Hawaii becomes integrated over the course of this 19th century into a global capitalist economy. Uh, but at the same time, Hawaiian workers also recreate the Pacific world in their own image as they travel uh, on different um, uh, ships and uh, uh, in, uh, are engaged in different forms of, of work. Um, your book is a book about capitalism. It's about globalization colonialism, and in the environment. So it's quite intersectional uh, book in terms of topics. Um, let's delve a little bit deeper into the specific arguments of your book. Um, mm -hmm. Your book is structured along different workscapes. Um, that's one of the central terms. So I wonder if you could um, uh, let our listeners know what a workscape is and how you decided to structure your book, um, not only chronologically, but also topologically uh, uh, along these different workscapes, the different places that um, Hawaiian workers uh, were um, laboring in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that term workscape, I, I believe it comes from Thomas Andrews, who wrote a really great book called Killing for Coal, which looks at uh, coal miners in Colorado in the early 20th century. And um, I think he coined that term about trying to understand the way that workers um, have this kind of dialectical relationship with the environment that they work in. They both shape it through work. They remake the environment through work, but the environment also um, shapes their, their experiences of their, their bodily experiences, their health, their experiences of place, so on. So, um, yeah, but to back, to back off a little bit from that term specifically, if you think about the sort of geography of the project, um, I can go back to the sandalwood thing. So Sandalwood struck me first as the beginning of the project because it so clearly had a China connection. And that's what I was exploring at first with the genesis of the book. Um, because I knew that a lot of that Sandalwood was going to Guangzhou, to, to Canton in uh, South China, and was being turned into incense and into, and into other commodities. And 
I really got interested in commodity chain analysis. And um, I originally envisioned the book as a sort of commodity history book, not labor. Um, originally, I was going to look at a bunch of different commodities that Hawaii was central to, but that maybe weren't from Hawaii or that connected the connected North America and East Asia through Hawaii. And um, I'm pretty much, pretty much ended up with those commodities in a sense with the chapters, sandalwood, whale oil, um, guano. And guano was the second project I pursued after sandalwood. Um, and the gold rush, gold, and... Um, and then I end with sugar, although that was a decision I made later to end with that. I had explored sea otters, which is like the sea otter fur is so important in the late 18th, early 19th century Pacific economy. I ended up deciding that would just be a couple pages, though, um, partly because there's some great books already out there about sea otter stuff. Um, but that's really, really fascinating. It brings in Russia, too, and it brings in other indigenous people, like um, people from uh, Alaska and, and Eurasia and so on. Um, so, and I thought about others like coconut, for example, but, um, mm. I, so one of the ways to limit it was to think temporally. I knew that based on the historiography around Hawaii, I knew that there was an overemphasis of scholars on Cook, on Captain Cook. And I decided very early that I don't want to do, I didn't want to say anything about Cook. I think I mentioned that the Hawaiians killed him and that's it. You know, he gets like a sentence. Um, because I don't want to overdetermine the significance of him. Um, and then on the other side, temporally, I thought that the U.S. annexation of Hawaii in the 1890s was also really um, overdetermined in the historiography. It becomes larger than life-sized. And I think Cook and the U.S. annexation, um, I really wanted to know, you know, does this story exist? Uh, how does this story exist apart from those those sort of touchstones. And I think someone could write an amazing book that would be, that would do mine over that really engages with those things. Like, I don't think I really do engage with U.S. colonialism as much as pretty much any other scholar looking at Hawaii. And, and so I have, so I decided to sideline those things and that gave me my temporal uh, benchmarks that I would look at the 1780s after Cook's dead to I decided up to 1876, which does center the U.S. in a sense, and that that's uh, that's when a, a reciprocity treaty goes into effect between the U.S. and the Kingdom of Hawaii. That has a huge, huge economic impact um, locally. Um, but then, so when I made those temporal limits, then that limited the commodities I would look at. Um, and then the final point about this for the, for the macro picture is how I got to why I decided to focus on labor and capitalism, because that's not how the project began. I was going to really center the stuff, like a, the agency of the animals and plants and minerals and the commodities themselves. But 
once I started learning Hawaiian language, uh, which I started taking classes with a teacher in Harlem in New York City where I was living, uh, of all places, to learn Hawaiian, um, I started... Uh, I started doing translations, which are a huge part of the book, where these translations of workers' letters. And immediately I realized that this is the story. It's not the stuff that's floating around. It's the workers' writings that make sense of the globality of the economic processes, the environmental processes, cultural changes. Like it's all in the workers' words. And now, I don't want to overstate that. There's about 50 or so uh, workers' writings that I use, Hawaiian language writings that are used throughout the book. Um, and there's a lot of other sources that I needed to flesh out the full picture. But I really decided that it would be really important to, to center those indigenous voices. Um, and thus it became a labor history. And uh, And then the final point about that is that I also, I've been involved in a lot of activism um, my whole adult life and still am, and it really informs my approach to history. And um, uh, the Occupy Wall Street movement happened while I was doing my dissertation and living in New York. And I became involved in that and also with labor union stuff at, the, at my university. And so I was learning a lot in the streets about, uh, about capitalism and um, theories that I wasn't really engaging necessarily in the classroom. Um, and learning about labor from new perspectives as well. And so I'd say the mix of discovering the Hawaiian workers' writings and then my own personal involvement in anti-capitalist activism, frankly, um, those two things came together and really shaped the, the kind of meta- structure and argumentation of the book. So it, which is all to say in my six years in grad school, I went in with one idea and it changed a heck of a lot. And even after the dissertation, of course, I spent three more years on it and it changed, it changed even more. Um, yeah. Wow. That probably sounds familiar to many people who went to grad school. Um, <laughs> especially historians um, who come in with one idea and then they go to the archives and uh, live life and then they get uh, different ideas about it. So thank you so much for giving us a little bit of a background and how you got interested in and how uh, different influences came together there. Um, speaking of, of capitalism, I wanted to sort of pick up there um, uh, in chapter one, which is about the sandalwood trade with China. Um, you mentioned this is partly a commodity history. Uh, it's about sea otter fur only a little bit, as you mentioned, sandalwood, tea, but also the provisioning trade uh, that Hawaii uh, becomes important uh, in. Uh, and then the Great Mahela, the, uh, the enclosure of, uh, of, of the Hawaiian commons in the 1840s. Uh, can you lay out a little bit what, what's going on there in the, uh, in the earlier um, first half of the 19th century in uh, Hawaii as it's becoming slowly integrated into global commodity chains? Yeah, so a lot of histories of the early 19th century in Hawaii really focus a lot on American missionaries who came in the 1820s or 1819, 1820, <clears throat> and um, their influence. And then there's also, as I mentioned, this kind of overdetermined 
teleological kind of approach of like U.S. U.S. involvement um, back to that time, even though I try to show in my book that the U.S. is a player, but they're not in control of of these things. Um, And so you're right that the first chapter really tries to center actually what's happening from the 1780s to probably the 1840s, yeah, around 1850. And I focused on Boki, who was uh, effectively the governor of Oahu, uh, where by the time he was in that position in the 1820s, Oahu had become sort of central location of these trades. That wasn't always the case in the late late 18th, early 19th century. But by the 1820s, Honolulu was really becoming centralized. Uh, in the transoceanic uh, economic circuits. And, you know, I look at the fact that he, he really has his hands deep in um, managing the, uh, the Hawaiian kingdom's engagement with outside, uh, with ships and with trade with China and so on, um, particularly after the death of Kamehameha in the late 1810s. So, um, yeah, so I try, to, I try to make a lot of different things come together in this chapter. I, want to sh- I need to show both the political changes in Hawaii, uh, which is not a huge focus of my book. Um, there's great work by Native Hawaiian scholars that look at the political history. But I did need to show how Kamehameha had unified the islands and developed this monopoly over labor and resources and what that system looked like. And then how that system is really disrupted in the wake of his death. Not, real, not only by missionaries coming in and bringing in this like pseudo-capitalist Christian ideas, which is, which is there and that's part of it. Um, but also I think just some of the chaos of the 1820s period in Hawaii um, and entering into global trades on such a, such a scale that had unforeseen consequences. And Sandalwood is the is that story. I mean, the people who have written about Sandalwood before, it's often a tale of, you know, the Hawaiian Kingdom got in over their head and ended up just, you know, cutting down every last tree uh, that existed and then and then that was it. That, that economy imploded. I do try to show in the chapter, I think it's much, much more complicated than that. We have to look at the market in China and how, where Sandalwood's coming from and how that market shifts from in the 1810s, 20s, 30s, 40s over time. Uh, U.S. ships and companies are largely the middle men in that trade. And so I looked at their records in Boston and New York. I went all over to look at these old uh, companies that did Sandalwood trade. Um, you know, I show that the process of Hawaiian workers becoming wage workers, which is a crucial question in histories of capitalism. It goes back to Marx trying to understand this sort of proletarianization. How do, how, do, uh, how do people who live on the land, you know, in what Marx would have called a feudal system, which is not appropriate, um, wholly so to use here, but how do workers in that situation become wage workers in a capitalist system? And I try to show really complexly here because it is complex how Hawaiian workers who are harvesting sandalwood, some of them did get cash. Um, 
Some of them didn't. Some of them worked in the traditional labor systems for the ali'i, for the, the ruling chiefs in, in the districts where they lived. There's a whole sort of uh, whole uh, portmanteau of different kinds of labor systems all mashed up on top of each other. And it's really a fascinating viewpoint into to the processes of proletarianization to see just how messy that was. And for decades, there's sort of those mixed, uh, mixed systems of labor going on all the way up until the Mahele, uh into the 1840s and the 50s. The, the last thing I'll say about this chapter two is that I really wanted to show the materiality of sandalwood, like what is it and why does it matter? And so I get into some questions of like the cult, the material cultures of the smell of sandalwood and why that, why that was desirous and um, native Hawaiian cultures of sandalwood versus Chinese cultures of sandalwood. And, um, you know, even how the Americans who are sort of middle middlemen in that, how they engaged with it. I really try to understand how, our relationship to things, what would be in this case trees, how how variable it can be and shaped by different uh, our different position within macroeconomic, you know, structures and processes. Um, and I think we'll talk about the whaling stuff in a second. But I mean, that's one that I really tried to make a point of with whalebone. That you know, Hawaiians who are harvesting whalebone may not have known that they were being used as corsets for like upper class white women in New England. Like, right. There's these connections across the world that not everyone might even be aware that they are participant in. And, um, you know, I think it's an interesting question as a historian of how we narrate, narrate that sort of macro level of uh, people's relationship to, to things. Great. Uh, since you mentioned it, the next two chapters take us onto the ocean in pursuit of whales. Um, tell us a little bit more about these whale workers, many of them in the Pacific uh, from Hawaii in that period in the mid-19th century. Um, what were their experiences like and how did they think about the Pacific and uh, the global economy, really, um, as they were engaged on, on whaling ships um, across the Pacific? Yeah, so in terms of raw numbers, you know, um, my dissertation, I try to sort of calculate how many Hawaiians um, left Hawaii in the 19th century in these different trades. And whaling is by far the, the biggest one. You know, sandalwood is actually really hard to, so that's not leaving Hawaii. But the other commodities I look at, we're talking about maybe a thousand people here and there. Whaling, I think the estimates I made in my dissertation was trying to guess maybe 10 to 20,000 Hawaiians uh, had engaged on whaling ships over this period. In the book, I steer away from those kind of uh, speculations because I'm not a numbers person. I'm not a quantitative historian. And, and the, the fact is, I mean, there's some numbers in chapter two, but the fact is, as I try to explain, that um, I'm not sure we have all the records to do that. Um, But it's huge. So we're talking about thousands and thousands, maybe tens of thousands of people. Um, I try to get down to the level of individual workers. I try to do that in every chapter. So this chapter, chapter two, focuses on Make, uh, who's a particular worker who 
uh, intersected with New London, Connecticut, which is uh, one place I talk about a bit here, one of the whale worlds, as I call them. And I did some research on Mystic Seaport, where, where that, where those stories came out. Um, I talk about Kea Aloha in Chapter Three, who was a whale worker who was stranded in on the north north slope of Alaska uh, for about a year with a with a Tahitian friend, uh, you know, living among the Inupiat uh, native peoples there, and you know, so I think a lot of uh, a lot of people unfamiliar with Pacific history in the 19th century should be like, what? You know, um, but these kind of exchanges and um, uh, yeah, these kind of exchanges are just part of the story. Um, they're not that spectacular. It's uh, there were a lot of Hawaiians up in the Arctic Circle, and you know, the map in the beginning of my book, I, I list, I show some of these places up on the north slope of Alaska, and also in uh, the very eastern edge of of Russia in the Far East, like Cape Hawaii. Uh, it's a one-named place up there. So um, so that's all to say that whaling is is huge. Huge number of Hawaiians involved, also covering huge amounts of area. The dominant whale ground shifted a lot over time from off of Japan in the 1820s to, you know, by the 1850s, 60s, 70s, and really, really focusing in the Arctic. I didn't know any of that history about Native Hawaiians in the Arctic. Um, and so that actually becomes all of chapter three is about the Arctic because I think that that's a really important story um, to tell. So, um, yeah, so there's a lot of different ways that I get at this in here. I talk about the whales themselves, the different species, and um, how Hawaiians engaged with these whales, both. Uh, in sort of pre-capitalist whaling cultures, but also um, in this system in the 19th century of, of what we we could call industrial whaling or capitalist whaling. Scholars have used those terms. I try to look at how whaling severely disrupted life dom- domestically in Hawaii in so many ways. It shifted the it, it led to it was an, it was implicated in massive uh, shift of, from rural to urban uh, urbanization in Hawaii, which was also connected with proletarianization because you have all these workers who are not tied to the land anymore. The development of a massive sexual marketplace in places like Lahaina, Hilo, and Honolulu, which were the three biggest whaling ports. The connection between Hawaii and Places like New London, Connecticut, or New Bedford, Massachusetts. You know, and other scholars have looked at Hawaiians in New England, which I decided I would just do a couple pages on. But there's a huge story there of Native Hawaiians in New England in the 19th century, and still place names named, named for uh, Native Hawaiians there. And I look at, uh, you know, I try to center the workers' experiences. Um, Whaling is whaling's a harder one to actually get the workers' writings on because they're kind of always moving on ships, you know. So uh, in the later chapters with the guano workers and the gold miners and stuff like that, they have there's regular ships going to and from their place of work back to Hawaii that can take uh, take letters and bring back newspapers, you know, and you have Hawaiians in these far flung places reading Hawaiian language newspapers and subscribing to them, which is wild. 
uh, in the 1850s, 60s. Whaling, there was there's less of that. You know, it's mostly maybe there was mostly accounts um, back home in Hawaii of uh, whalemen who would come back or people who weren't even whale workers themselves, but talking about the thousands of whale workers who'd come back seasonally and what they were bringing with them, new words that they had learned on ships and in the Arctic and new cultural behaviors that they had learned and so on. Um, and then the Arctic story, there, there are a few accounts by workers that are published in Hawaiian language newspapers that I focus on that, uh, like Kealoha's, that do talk about what it was like to be stranded there and, and live on the north slope of Alaska. So just remarkable, remarkable primary sources for, for a historian. That's great. I wanted to ask you, if I may, uh, a little bit to elaborate a little bit more on um, your conceptualization of of agency. You mentioned um, you're centering the Hawaiian workers and their experiences, and it's great that you found access to to letters and uh, to actual sort of ego documents from these from these workers. How do you think about the relationship between human and other than human agency, especially with these whale workers? Um, how do whales and humans come together there and interact over time? Yeah, I. It's interesting because I, you know, I don't I don't work in the field of environmental history anymore. But we'll talk about that at the end of the interview. But um, I, I think I earlier on in this project I gave the, the animals a bit more agency. I think by the 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 book that came out, the book, the final product here, um, I thought that. It's definitely important to center the workers um, and um, to understand what they did in order to connect these worlds together. That said, it as a historian, I felt that I had to acknowledge that the worlds that Hawaiians explored and made were built on the backs of whales, for example. You know, I used the, uh, the Maori um, story of the whale rider. Well, that, that's been sort of popularized through the book and the movie, The Whale Rider, but there's also a similar myth in Hawaii, actually. Um, but uh, I used that, that idea of like traveling on the back of a whale to, in order to find new places that's really how capitalist whaling happens in the 19th century. You know, why are, why are Hawaiians ending up on the North slope of Alaska in these situations? It, that doesn't have to do with worker agency saying, Hey, I'd really like to go there of all places. Right. I mean, who would want to, I mean, I don't know, well, I, there are, there are people who do want to, but like it was a very dangerous, um, very dangerous uh, pursuit. At that time, so many ships got lost in the uh, in the sea ice, which I write about. But you know, I write about how it was the zooplankton um, up in those in those seas that became such a feeding hotspot for the specific whale species there, and you know, and then its desire for particular products like baleen from those whales that are used like in the corsets, as I said, and a lot of other uses. Baleen is called the plastic of the 19th century was used for everything. And so you have 
the desires of consumers and industries thousands and thousands of miles away. You have animal, different animal species and their own unique feeding grounds and breeding grounds and migrations. And I wanted to understand all of those, all of those geographies because they're all interrelated. Um, so yeah, I think the question of agency is tricky. Um, there's so much great animal studies scholarship that really delves into this. And in my guano chapter goes the furthest in really trying to piece together the relationship between humans and animals in these processes. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I think I would say the geographies and the seasonalities of these workers' experiences are predicated simultaneously on economic and environmental uh, factors. It's always, it's always both. It's both the whales themselves, but it's also markets and understanding how markets work. So I was trying to do all of that at the same time, and hopefully I was able to. <laughs> Thanks for that. Uh, you already mentioned uh, your next chapter is about bird poop, uh, yeah. about gu guano and the mining of um, of these bird excrements. Um, let's talk a little bit about about that. There's quite some uh, interesting recent scholarship on on guano articles, even a book, um, and it seems to be uh, kind of a, a topic that that uh, um, helps us explain all kinds of big stories. How do you approach the the, the mining of guano on, on on various small islands in the in the Central Pacific uh, that Hawaiian workers were engaged in? What, what's your take on on guano mining? Yeah, I think that there are a way. There's way more stories to still tell about this. Um, like Gregory Cushman's book about guano is is fantastic and really gets at the like macro level global um, understanding of the role that bird guano played um, over space and time. I really wanted to do, uh, this chapter is almost sort of like a micro history. I mean, these islands that I'm focused on, there's three of them mainly that I'm focused on that are actually U.S. possessions. Um, but um You know, at the time of this chapter, I think they they are they, they become U.S. possessions. But um, and I write about how that happened. Part of this like race for national race for guano lands, where you know U.S. ships they could stick a flag in the ground on on these uninhabited lands and claim them for the U.S. And they're, they're still U.S. possessions today, which is wild. Um, but I read a lot. I read everything I could find about these islands. You know, stuff about the Cold War uses of the islands, which is a that's other scholarship, but really interesting. And I read so many books about seabirds, including lots of scientific uh, studies about seabirds related to these islands, related to equatorial islands. And part part of the leap that I'm making in this chapter, which is which some historians might. Uh, think is dangerous is that I do I do end up using a lot of contemporary scientific scholarship about uh, these islands and about seabird uh, behaviors in that area to try to project back 150 plus years and understand what was going on then. I think that that's dangerous to do, but um, I try to do so in a way that's 
um, to make sure it linked up with all primary accounts that I had of what was going on there too. So yeah, the chapters are like all these chapters, there's a big mix of a lot of different kinds of approaches, but um, yeah, so there's, there's the approach to sort of understanding seabird life. I want to know. So I really, you know, I learned quickly that seabirds are nesting and, and breeding on these islands, but I didn't know a lot about their feeding practices. And so learning more about those geographies of where these different seabird species are going to, to feed and what they're feeding on and what parts of the world are that, is that linking uh, back to these places? Um, and then I do look at Hawaiian workers' writings. This, these were actually the first Hawaiian workers' writings that I translated and, and worked with as a grad student. Um, was this project? So this is almost maybe ten years ago. I started. I started with these letters, and that's what got me to realize that the whole book should be a labor history, because the letters from these workers from these islands are incredible. They talk about the the birds a little bit, which is what I wanted, you know, at first to find. But they talk about the fish, and you know, it's interesting to think about how they are so far from, from home in extremely isolated, uh, desolate places where they're being pretty horribly mistreated by the companies that they've contracted for and abandoned in some ways. And yet they're finding ways to recreate sense, a sense of place through fishing, through reading the Kahai Hawaii, the Hawaiian language newspapers, which they get subscribed to and get, you know, whenever the next ship comes out with supplies, they want to, they want to look at the newspaper, which they write back to. Um, so those stories were just pretty, pretty incredible. Um, and uh, yeah, so the chapter is sort of a dance between understanding the birds and uh, what the birds are doing and the science of guano um, and why this was such an important commodity in the 19th century. But then I think unlike, unlike Cushman's book and unlike a lot of the other studies of guano, I really, really, really wanted to focus on guano workers. There's not a lot of scholarship out there, I think, about guano labor. And um, these, these letters I found tell an incredible story. You know, and then when I look at the company records too, like, I have an appendix in the back of the book with a contract that a guano worker signed. I really went deep into looking at the contracts that the workers signed and looking at the shipping records when Hawaiians agreed to go to these islands, trying to understand some of the more ruthless uh, capitalists, you know, aspects of what they were doing out there and to, to what ends um, economically. So that, that sort of gives a picture of the different threads in that chapter. Thanks for that. Hawaiians also went to California um, in the 1840s and 50s as part of the gold rush. And usually I think we think of the uh, Chinese uh, moving to Gold Mountain uh, at that time, but Hawaiians were part of that as well. And that's, that's, your, that's your fifth chapter in your book. Can you tell us a little bit more about how Hawaiians ended up in California, especially in the Bay Area and um, how they made a new life there. Yep. So this, um, this chapter began also with finding a letter uh, from a native Hawaiian who was writing from uh, 
from California. It may have been Nahoa's letter who I started the chapter with, and he's sort of like the central um, biographical um, figure in this chapter. I tried, I tried to learn as much as I could about this young guy. Um, believe that when he wrote this letter, which I I worked was one of the first letters I worked on translating with my teacher in New York City when I was learning Hawaiian. Uh, and we found all of these just to say, um, I mean, there's a whole backstory here that we don't have time to get into, but Hawaiian language newspaper digitization has been a major, major, major project in Hawaii. Um, and I could not have done this project without digitization. I did go to Hawaii so many times to look at original sources. But, you know, very early on when I was in New York, it was finding these digitized versions. So anyway, um, you know, I found Nahoa's letter. He's writing home from California about how awful it is and how sad he is and missing home. Um, and I found a bunch of other letters too. And I all use this phrase, aloha meka laimaka, which I translate as aloha with tears. And that sort of became a frame for this chapter of the golden dreams of America, you know, the gold rush people from all over the world, right? not just Chinese, not just Hawaiians, but people from all over the world came to California at that time to seek a better life. And I estimate that I estimated around a thousand Hawaiians. I know, I know a scholar is actually working on this topic now and it's going to figure out more exact uh, data, but I estimate about a thousand Hawaiians came out to participate in that. And a lot of what I look at in the chapter is... Well, I look at both what, what happened before the gold rush, because a backstory there is that Native Hawaiians were a huge part of Alta California, of Spanish-controlled uh, Alta California in the early 19th century. So I felt like I really needed to tell that story because you know, Hawaiians beat a lot of foreigners to that region, basically. You know, And some of the incredible statistics that I... And stories I have in there of, are of these, like uh, the Hawaiian workers in San Francisco, who at one point were 10% of the population. Now, this is when San Francisco was only like 500 people, but still to be 10% of the population of what's now San Francisco, including owning land that was then stripped away from them when the U.S. took control. You know, and one of the things I did when I was in San Francisco doing research was to go find those plots of land and I have photographs of them, which I've shown in presentations to show that like this street corner downtown in San Francisco, that's now worth probably millions of dollars. You know, this was owned by a native Hawaiian person <laughs> in the hmm. 1840s, which I think is really incredible. So, so this chapter has got three parts, basically first is before the gold rush, looking at Hawaiians in uh, the Spanish controlled California in the missions in San Francisco, in uh, inland, working for Sutter um, in what becomes the Sacramento area, you know, and I, I, I don't go so far to say that Hawaiians founded Sacramento, but it's basically something to that effect that Hawaiians were instrumental in developing that area of, of California too. So that's the first part. The second part looks at the actual gold rush. Um, and I try to map out the geography of where Hawaiians were. A lot of this is based on, on U.S. censuses, which are problematic. Like the 1850 census has been destroyed. 
uh, parts of it destroyed by fire. So it's really hard to reconstruct that really crucial year of 1850. Um, but one of my favorite parts of the chapter actually is the third part then, that looks at after the gold rush, what happens to these hundreds, thousands of native Hawaiians who are in California? What do they do when, uh, you know, gold mining becomes, it becomes very industrialized and, uh, um, you know, Hawaiian workers are, put out of work in those places. And I wanted to trace where some of these people go, including Nahoa. And I found him, he, I found him in, I guess it was in the census that I found him and that on a farm outside of Sacramento and that farm community actually had maybe 20 some Hawaiians living in it. Uh, I include a photograph in that chapter of a, of a family, a Hawaiian family living in that small town. That's another place I drove out to that town when I was in California today. And it's, it's, there's really not a lot there to see at all, but um, you know, but anyway, it's interesting to see. So some Hawaiians go into farming, growing opium, which ties back to China again, I guess, or maybe it ties to Chinese Americans and new cultures of drug use in California. Um, Hawaiians who go to cities and work in factories. That's actually how Nahua ends up dying. Well, I assume he's working at a uh, he's working at a factory and he got a disease. Um, uh, all over the place, Hawaiians go into sex work, um, and and particularly in San Francisco, there's a lot of homelessness, destitution, street economies, you know, beggars. And so I look at that too, this sort of underground economy that's in San Francisco of of people who had come for the gold rush and got stuck there. And we're now living on the streets and working in what today we would call the informal economy, you know, not for wages, but just sort of trying to make a buck whatever way that they, they could. And I thought that those stories were really, really important too. At the end of your book, you return to Hawaii proper and talk about sugar plantations in, in Maui, thinking about the proletarianization of, of Hawaiians um, on these on these plantations, uh, uh, together with newly recruited Chinese contract workers who also come to Hawaii, as well as many other places, uh, um, to work on these plantations. Can you tell us a little bit about how these sugar plantations, another major, probably the one of the most central commodities in the rise of of capitalism, together with cotton, um, how that plays out in in Hawaii, uh, and why you decided to end. Um, your book with the sugar plantations. Yeah. So sugar, a lot of, most historians would agree that sugar is in, in many ways Hawaii's story, the story of the U.S. annexation, right? The story of colonialism is tied in with sugar. Um, and again, here I wanted, I said, okay, I'm going to, I want to tell sugar's story, but I'm not going to go that far chronologically. I don't want to get up to the U.S. period um, or the U.S. rule, formal rule, and what what would it look like to tell a story about sugar in Hawaii that follows the same kind of methodology that I've been doing in the other chapters that that doesn't center a teleological view of U.S. rule, but includes China, for example, right? And so one of the big Foci of this final chapter is to be a sort of bookend to the sandalwood chapter at the beginning. 
to, to come in and start the story with the real importance of China in Hawaii and Pacific history, and then end back there too again with the real importance of China here with the story of the sugar plantations. I was also like really, really invested in telling a story that looked at, and this is true of the whole book, but this comes out a lot here, a story about race and racialization also. And so looking at the construction of the Hawaiian worker as a so-called kanaka, uh, which has its own meanings in Hawaiian, but this is the way that you know, it was used by, by foreigners looking at um, the term, which I equate with the way that foreigners use the term coolie to refer to Chinese workers, that these were terms that denoted a particular kind of racialized laborer. Um, and what did it look like in Hawaii for Native Hawaiian workers who were central to the founding of the sugar industry? I mean, that's often a footnote in sugar histories because if you look at the long scope of sugar in Hawaii, it's uh, labor histories have often focused on, with good reason in terms of numbers, Chinese, Japanese, Portuguese, Korean, workers from all over the world, uh, immigrant workers. Because by the time I end my book, by the, by the 1870s, as I show at the very end of this chapter, foreign workers, particularly Chinese workers, had become the dominant workforce uh, in Hawaii. So I wanted to both show that there's a sort of backstory to sugar in Hawaii of 40, 50 years that, that centers Native Hawaiian labor, uh, who are often left out of sort of uh, understandings of how the sugar plantation system worked in Hawaii. Uh, there's, uh, yeah, it's really rooted in indigenous, uh, indigenous labor power. And I wanted to understand how that process of displacement of, you know, mostly American employers, I, I focus on this guy Beckwith, who, oh, his, another historian's dream, his records at the Hawaiian Mission Children's Society Library in downtown Honolulu. His records are, I mean, they're, they're the records of this plantation uh, in Haiku, Maui. Um, it's just so extensive. I could have written a whole book based on those plantation records. You know, and I get into really specific stuff in this chapter about the types of food that they are procuring to feed a Chinese worker versus the type of food they were procuring to feed a Hawaiian worker and how that was based in these like pseudo science, you know, race, 19th century race science ideas about the difference between Hawaiian and Chinese bodies. Um, I look at the arrival of Hansen's disease in Hawaii, which is also a big touchstone in Hawaiian history, um, also known as leprosy, but Hansen's disease, the correct term for that. And I found in the Hawaiian language uh, writings the ways that that was racialized as a Chinese disease and um, how the influx of Chinese workers were seen as vectors, you know, from a native Hawaiian viewpoint in this kind of working class struggle also over jobs and, and the changing use of land in, in spaces like Haiku, this small town. That's another place I drove out to in Maui and it's like, there's not a lot there um, today. Um, it was a plantation community. And I really, this is a micro history again, I guess. And I really try to show how this, this town in 
uh, in the eastern end of Maui became a flashpoint of these global processes of uh, testing out different kinds of racialized workers against each other, importing workers from afar, we're importing food and everything. It's basically creating a whole new ecology, a whole new world in this space um, through through the ideas that the American employers had about uh, about bodies and about health and about how to structure a, a plantation environment in the most efficient way. Um, so, um, so there's a lot there. <laughs> like I said, all the others, there's a lot of different threads as I try to try to do global history in a sort of micro uh, setting, right? Which is involves a lot of different scales and and different stories and being interwoven. Great. I think the reader gets a, an amazing sense of the uh, dimensions of this Hawaiian Pacific world that you trace and, and sketch out. And also methodologically, I think it's 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 a great contribution to be um, thinking about global history from from the ground up, uh, from uh, through the eyes of, of working people, in this case, Hawaiians. So um, I hope this becomes a, a new trend in global history to be doing more of that. Um, your book was published in, in 2018, around two years ago. Um, what have you learned since the book came out about the Uh, subject that you that you wrote about about Hawaiian workers, about capitalism or colonialism, uh, maybe the reception of the book as well. Uh, what has what has changed since it came out? I mean, um, so by the time this book came out, I was already really invested in some new things, which I'll talk about shortly. But uh, I. I have regrets about the book. I mean, that's uh, important to mention. I mean, I think I feel very strongly that the process that I did uh, researching and writing this book was not as accountable to Native Hawaiian communities and Native Hawaiian scholars as I wish that it had been. I've learned a lot as a public historian, uh, which is the focus of my teaching and most of my, my work now, um, more about the ethics of telling other people's stories and um, the importance of community accountability in terms of, you know, who are the descendants of these folks who I'm writing about and who are the stakeholders who are most impacted by the way I tell this story. It was something I did tussle with, of course, in the, in the eight years of writing the book, I worked with several three or four different Native Hawaiian uh, language scholars, both as teachers and as translators. And, you know, and then asked many, as many Native Hawaiian scholars as I could to read over materials and stuff. Some were willing to, some weren't. Um, but I think that if I could go back in time, I would have done the project very, very differently. I mean, if I was who I am today and what I know, Uh, and what I believe, I guess my values now about the processes of doing history, I would go back in time and I would start the project with building relationships with Native Hawaiian scholars from the get-go. Um, and so I think, anyway, that's a sort of what if, because I didn't do that. And I, and I very strongly regret that I, I didn't, because I'm an outsider. And so I think that the book... Um, does not succeed in that way, that it, it was not done in collaboration with Native Hawaiian scholars. 
um, to the to the extent that I wish it had been. Um, the book has been, you know, and in terms of the reviews I've seen, the book has been well received by non-native scholars, and it has been criticized, rightly so, by several native scholars. And I think that that's correct. Um, and so, you know, I have a lot of I have a lot of misgivings about the project actually. And I, you know, I encourage listeners to purchase books by native Hawaiian scholars, you know, over my own, um, because I think that there's a, there's some real deep political and ethical concerns, particularly um, around Hawaiian scholarship that I, I did not engage fully faithfully with. Thanks for this honest reflection. I think this is a big challenge for for many um, historians and other scholars working on areas in the world and with communities that they are not part of. Um, I do think there's there's something to be gained by doing it as well. Um, so um, I do encourage all the listeners to actually pick up a copy <laughs> and have a look, um, and also read Native Hawaiian historians. Um, I think you can yes. you can do both. Yeah. Um, I think there's something to be gained from 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 different perspectives. Um, we wanted to end the interview as we usually do with just asking you about what you're working on right now. You finished this book a few years ago. What's your current research uh, about? You already mentioned, I think you, you branched out into, into different topics. Yeah, so um, in the process of writing this book, I, I, I came out as queer and then I came out as transgender. And um, I, since 2015, so three years before this book was published, I started doing research here in Virginia in the community I live in around... Uh, around queer history, public history, and memory, and so on. It's such a huge departure from beyond Hawaii. It's sort of frowned upon in academia, I think, to make such a big shift in one's career. But it was very much motivated by the issues that I just brought up about my outsider status. I felt that I really wanted to write a book about my about a community that I'm part of with the accountability that comes from doing public history, oral history, those methodologies of having lived and worked in this community now for the past five years and, um, you know, writing about how people here in the community I live in in Virginia think about LGBT history and live it and live uh, as uh actors in an unfolding history in our, in our lives. So um, I have an advanced contract already with this um, book that I'm really excited about. It's a mix of memoir about my own, um, my own journey in terms of gender and sexuality. It's based on 40 some oral histories that a team of folks that I've been training and working with for years have conducted. And, uh, and it's about, Uh, and it's about people's lives today and how they engage with the past. So it, it couldn't be more different than what I was trained to do in grad school. And, um, and the work that I did for about 10 years on this book, the Hawaii book. Um, but it feels like the right shift in my life right now. And I'm going for it. <laughs> 
So I'd love to talk about this new book when it's done. <laughs> that sounds like a, a great project. And as you mentioned, it, it is connected in, in, in some way to your, to your Beyond Hawaii. I want to yeah. thank you uh, for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it. Take care. 